Section 43 of The Complete Works of Bran, The Iconoclast, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Complete Works of Bran, The Iconoclast, Volume 12, by William Cowper Bran. Section 43. Slave or Sovereign. Status of the American Citizen. Part 2. Synopsis of an Address Delivered by Mr. Bran, August 10, 1895. Slave or Sovereign. The last is an individual entity, a controlling power. His will is law. The first goes and comes fetches and carries at the command of a master creating wealth he may not possess bound by laws he does not approve dependent upon the pleasure of others for the privilege of breaking bread is not the latter condition that of a majority of the american people to-day are they not at the subsequent end of a financial hole the sides soaped and never a ladder in sight in a country so favored, a veritable garden of the gods, where every prospect pleases, and not even the politician is wholly vile, the lowliest laborer should be a lord, and each and all find life well worth the living. But it is not so. People starve while sunny savannas, bursting with fatness, yield no food. They wander houseless through summer's heat and winter's cold, while great mountains of granite comb the fleecy clouds and the forest monarch measures strength with the thunderstorm they flee naked and ashamed from the face of their fellow-men while fabrics moulder in the market-place and the song of the spindle is silent they freeze while beneath their feet are countless tons of coal incarnate kisses of the sun-god's fiery youth they have never a spot of earth on which to plant a vine and watch their children play where they may rear with loving hands lowly roof and rule lords of a little world hemmed in by the sacred circle of a home yet the common heritage in the human race lies fair before them and there is room enough the people of texas do not realize how terrible is the industrial condition of the world to-day how wide the gulf that separates dives and lazarus how pitiful the poverty of millions of their fellow-men the texas merchant complains of dull trade the farmer of low prices the mechanic of indifferent wages yet texas is the most favored spot on the great round earth to-day I defy you to find another portion of the globe of equal area and population where the wealth is so well distributed, where so few people go hungry to bed without prospect of breakfast. But the grisly gorgon of greed and the gaunt spectre of need are coming west and south in the wake of the star of empire. Already Texas has begun to breed millionaires and mendicants, sovereigns and slaves. Already we have an aristocracy of money in which wealth makes the man and want of it the fellow, 
and year by year it becomes easier for dives to add to his hoard and for lazarus to starve to death we appeal to new york for capital with which to develop our resources and new york has it in abundance countless millions she is eager to let out at usury yet it is estimated that ten thousand children perish in that city every year of the world for lack of food and how many are kept alive by the bitter bread of a contemptuous charity god only knows in one year three thousand children were debarred from the public schools of chicago because of lack of clothing to cover their nakedness and chicago boasts herself the typical american city the despised salvation army trying to feed a thousand homeless and hungry men on the sandlots of san francisco proves that already the curse has travelled across the continent and people who are not only permitted to run at large but actually elected to office prattle of overproduction while people are starving in nakedness proposes to eliminate pauperism and inaugurate the industrial millennium by placing fiddle-strings on the free list or increasing the tariff tax on toothpicks to relieve the country of the commercial jim-jams by means of the gold cure and the fool-killer still procrastinates the american citizen is called a sovereign by those patriots who are preparing to sacrifice themselves on the altar of a nice fat office and perhaps he is but i'm free we are frequently told that the condition of labor is better to-day than a century ago that is half a truth yet wholly a falsehood a century ago the workman knew naught of many comforts and conveniences he now enjoys when he happens to have a job but that was one age this quite another progress gives no man new wants and the luxuries of one generation become the necessities of the next to deny this to limit the laborer to actual necessaries as measured by a former age were to relegate him back to barbarism to nomadism and nakedness if we should be content with what our fathers had then they should have been satisfied with the comforts enjoyed by their progenitors and so on back until man digs roots with his finger-nails attires himself in a streak of red paint for winter overcoat and a few freckles for summer ulster it is by comparison with his fellows and not with his fathers that man determines whether he's fortunate or unfortunate whether he's receiving his proper proportion of the world's increase of wealth a century ago there was no glaring inequality as now exists there were no fifty million dollar fortunes and no free soup joints if the workman's piano was a jew's harp and his pullman car a spavined cayuse his employer was not erecting palaces in which to stable his bloodstock nor purchasing dissolute princes for his daughters to play at marriage and divorce with if the farmer's wife wore linsey woolsey and went barefoot to save her shoes her neighbor did not import five thousand dollar gowns from paris and put jeweled collars on her pet cur the difference in the condition of dives and lazarus is more sharply defined than ever before
it is not so much the pitiful poverty of the many as the enormous wealth of the few that is fostering discontent pride dallying with sin begot death wilful waste is breeding anarchy in the womb of want the lords and ladies of the house of have revel in luxury such as lucillus never knew while within sound of their feasting gaunt children fight like famished beasts for that which the breakfast garbage barrels afford private fortunes make the famed wealth of lydia's ancient kings appear but a beggar's patrimony while brawny giants must beg or steal and starving mothers give the withered breast to dying babes labor now seeks employment not as a right but as a privilege it has come to such a pitiful pass in this land of liberty this refuge of the world's oppressed that to afford a man an opportunity to employ his strength or skill in the creation of wealth a portion of which he may retain for his own support is regarded rather as a privilege than a free contract between american sovereigns an act of charity for which the recipient should be duly grateful no man can be a freeman while dependent upon the good will of another for his bread and butter he may be a sovereign de jure but he's a slave de facto and under present conditions the more labor-saving machinery he invents the tighter he rivets his chains we had hoped and believed that human ingenuity was about to lift the curse laid on adam by his angry lord the angel of intellect to re-imparadise the poor slave place his fetters on nature's tireless forces and declare that never again should bread be eaten in the sweat of the brow but man proposes and is sued for breach of promise were a man to declare labor-saving machinery and the general development of the country a curse to the poor he would be branded as a mossback or budding candidate for bedlam yet it is unquestionably true that the further the average individual gets from the so-called blessings of civilization the less he is affected by our boasted industrial system the smaller his danger of starving to death many of us can remember when we had little labor-saving machinery in texas when railways were scarce as consistent christians at a colored camp meeting goods were carried down from coast on the backs of burrows and a full-dress suit consisted chiefly of buckskin breeches and a brace of angel-makers and we remember also that a pauper was a curiosity that the very cowboys played poker at ten dollars ante with the sky for limit the common laborer carried coin in his belt and the merchant had money to burn texas has developed wonderfully during the last few decades we now have improved machinery and extensive poor farms railways and political rings a three million dollar capital and an army of unemployed we have built fine schools and finer churches made the black man our political brother and bought his vote we have exchanged our buckskin for broadcloth our hair-raising profanity for the hypocrite's wine straight corn-juice for the champagne jag 
and the hip-pocket court for the jackass verdict of the petty jury but the cowboy now plays penny ante on credit or shoots craps for small coin the common laborer carries in his belt only a robust appetite while the merchant who dodges bankruptcy for a dozen years considers himself the special favorite of fortune and what is true of texas is true in greater or less degree of every state in the union development so dear to the heart of the patriotic and public-spirited citizen has a tendency to transform an independent and moderately prosperous people into masters and slaves but this is not the fault of labor-saving machinery nor of capital nor of development by itself considered the more wealth labor creates the more it should enjoy when the reverse is the case distribution is at fault the substitution of expensive machinery for hand labor eliminated the independent artisan his productive power was multiplied but his independence his ability to care for himself without the cooperation of large capital was gone the wheelwright could not return to his shop nor the shoemaker to his last and live in comfort competition with the iron fingers of the great factory were impossible labor must now await the pleasure of capital the creature has become lord of its creator the fierce competition of idle armies forces wages down and slowly but surely the workman is sinking back to the level occupied before the cunning brain of genius harnessed the lightning to his lathe and gave him nerves of steel and muscles of brass with which to fight his battle for bread with the improved machinery with which he is provided the american workman can create as much wealth in a week as he need consume in a month but he goes down on his knees and thanks god and the plutocracy for an opportunity to toil three hundred days in the year for a bare subsistence unfortunately i have no catholicon for every industrial ill but the political drug stores are full of em all you've got to do is to select your panacea pull the cork and let peace and plenty overflow a grateful land so we're told instead of the cure me quicks prescribed by the economic m d s i believe that our industrial system has been doped with entirely too many drugs i'd throw physic to the dogs exercise a little common sense and give nature a chance there's an old story of an arkansas doctor who invariably threw his patients into fits because he was master of that complaint but the economic m d s can't even cure fits when they attempt it the patient goes into convulsions instead of going to so much trouble to bar out cheap goods by means of tariff walls i'd bar out cheap men if you're making monkey wrenches at two dollars a day and some fellow abroad is building em for fifty cents your boss comes to you and says jim we've got to have a tariff to keep out the product of pauper labor or our nether garments ripped from narrative to neckband i can't pay you two dollars and compete with an employer who pays but fifty cents 
That sounds reasonable, and you swing back on the GOP tow-line, and lay a tariff tax on monkey wrenches that looms up like an old-time Democratic majority in Texas. And while you are burning ratification tar-barrels, and trying to shake hands with yourself in the mirror at the mechanics exchange, that fifty-cent fellow crosses the briny and robs you of your bench. Your old employer is protected all right, but where do you come in? You don't come in. You simply stand out in the industrial norther. You count the railroad ties from town to town while your wife takes in washing, your daughter goes to work in a factory at two dollars a week, and your son grows up an ignorant Arab and gets into ward politics or the penitentiary. You can't compete with the importation because you've been bred to a higher standard of living. You must have meat three times a day, a newspaper at breakfast, and a new book, or the iconoclast after supper. You must have your plunge bath and spring bed, your clean shave and Sunday shirt. How can you hope to hold your job when a man is bidding for it, who takes up his belly band for breakfast, dines on slumgullion, and sucks his breath for supper? to whom literature is an unknown luxury a bath a deplorable accident and a crummy old blanket a comfortable bed you can't do it and if you'll take the apostle's advice you'll quit trying no i wouldn't prevent the immigration of worthy europeans men of intelligence who dignify labor we have millions such in america and they are most estimable citizens our ancestors were all Europeans, and that man who is not proud of his parentage should have been born a beast. But I'd knock higher than Gilderoy's kite the theory that America should forever be the dumping ground for foreign filth, that people will be warmly welcomed here whom no other country wants and the devil wouldn't have. We have made American citizenship entirely too cheap. We permit every creature that can poise on its hind legs and call itself a man to sway the scepter of American sovereignty, to become an important factor in the formation of our public polity, and then, with this venal vote on the one hand eager to be bought, and the plutocrat on the other anxious to buy we wonder why it is that the invariable tendency of our laws is to make the rich man a prince and the poor man a populist while we are great only in that strange spell a name in this work of reform we've got to begin at the bottom with the body politic itself you can't make a silk purse of a sow's ear, nor sovereigns of men who were born to be slaves. We've got to grade up, or we're gone. Only superior intelligence is capable of self-government. Ignorance and tyranny go hand in hand. You may theorize until the bottomless pit is transformed into a skating park. You may vote tariffs high or low, and money hard or soft. You may inaugurate the single tax, or transform the American Republic into a commune, but the condition of the hewers of wood and the drawers of water will never be permanently bettered while ignorance and vice have access to the ballot-box. We have carried the enchanting doctrine of political equality entirely too far, and are paying the penalty. 
the rebound from the monstrous doctrine of the divine right of monarchs has hurried us into equal error disgusted with the rottenness of the established religion the french people once crowned a courtesan as goddess of reason maddened by the insolence of hereditary officialism our fathers placed the rod of power in the hoodlum's reckless hand and bound upon the stupid brow of hopeless nescience columbia's imperial crown that the greater must guide the lesser intelligence is nature's immutable law to deny this were to question our right to rule the beast and god's authority to reign king of all mankind self-preservation will yet compel us to guard the sacred privileges of american sovereignty as jealously as did rome her citizenship do this and all other needed reforms will follow as surely and as swiftly as the day god follows the dawn knowledge is power when those who vote fully understand that every dollar expended by government federal state or municipal must be created by the common people that first or last labor must furnish it forth we'll cease having billion-dollar congresses we'll cease paying a hundred and forty millions per annum in federal pensions we'll cease wasting a king's ransom annually in pretending to improve intermittent creeks and impossible harbors solely for political navigation we'll cease borrowing money in time of peace to bolster up that foolish financial fetish known as the gold reserve we'll cease making so many needless laws and paying aspiring patriots fat salaries to harass us with their enforcement we'll cease exempting from taxation the half-million-dollar church and laying a heavier mulct on the mechanic's cottage and the widow's cow we'll cease paying preachers five dollars a minute to stand up in our legislative halls and insult almighty god with perfunctory prayers we'll cease building so many palatial prisons where thieves and thugs may be cared for at the expense of honest people but we'll divide criminals into classes those who should be peremptorily hanged and those who should be whipped and turned loose to hustle their own hash nothing knocks the sawdust out of false sentiment so quickly as the realization that it's an expensive luxury and that we must pay the freight billion-dollar congresses eh do you know what that means there are less than fifteen million wealth creators in this country and the last farthing of it comes out of their pockets something over sixty-six dollars apiece if you had it in silver dollars and i suppose that most of you would accept silver you couldn't count it in a century lay the coins edge to edge and they'll belt the world pile them on top of each other and you'll have a silver shaft more than seventeen hundred and fifty miles high sand your hands and climb it perchance from the top you'll see many things among others what is oppressing the poor and while up in that rarefied atmosphere where the vision is good and thinking probably easy you will look around for those other pyramids of expense annually erected by state county and municipal government then come down firm in the faith that if this isn't a great government it ought to be 
considering what it costs. No wonder the workman carries in his pocket only an elegant assortment of holes. We're governed entirely too much. Officialism is becoming a veritable old man of the sea on the neck of labor's sinbad. About every fifth man you meet is a public servant of some sort, and you cannot get married or buried, purchase a drink or own a dog, except with a by-your-leave to the all-pervading law of the land. In some states, suicide itself is an infraction of the criminal code, and if the police don't cut you down in time to put you in jail, the preachers will send you to hell. Every criminal law this state and county and city needs can be printed in a book no larger than the iconoclast, and that's so plain that he who runs may read and reading understand. And when so printed and so understood, without the possibility of misconstruction, they could be enforced at one-fifth the cost of the present judicial failure. We have so many laws, and so much legal machinery, that when you throw a man into the judicial hopper, not even an astrologer can tell whether he'll come out a horse-thief or only a homicide, or whether the people will weary of waiting on the circumlocution office and take a change of venue to Judge Lynch. This can never be a land of religious liberty, the atheist can never be considered as on a political parody with his ultra-orthodox brother until we compel church property to bear its pro-rata of the public burdens. And right here, let me say a word about the apostle. I have been accused by people for whom no cherry-tree blooms or little hatchet is ground of being a rank atheist and a red-flag anarchist. It has been broadly intimated that I'm trying to rip the Christian religion up by the roots, rob trusting hearts of their hope, and deprive the preacher of his daily bread. Now I might just as well confess to you that I'm no angel. If I were, I'd fly out of Texas till the bifurcated Democratic Party has another harmony deal. When you hear people denouncing me as an atheist, just retire to your closet and pray. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you might add that nobody cares. No mortal son of Adam's misery can produce one line I ever wrote or quote one sentence I ever uttered disrespectful of any religion, and that's more than you can say of most of the ministers. But it is not right. It is not just that the little holdings of the poor should be relentlessly taxed and costly temples exempted, palatial edifices in which polite society pretends to worship one who broke bread with beggars and slept in the brush. Such an arrangement signifies neither good religion nor good sense. It's the result of sanctified selfishness. I believe in taxing luxuries, and a costly church is not a necessity. At least Christ did not think so, for he never built one. Congregations that can afford to erect fine churches and export saving grace to the pagans of foreign climes can afford to pay taxes and thereby help American heathen out of the hole a million men out of employment, pacing our streets in grim despair, 
a million children coming up in ignorance and crime a million women hesitating between the wolf of want and the abundance of infamy and the church supposed to be god's ministering angel crying give give if you can't give much give little remember the widow's might so acceptable to a pauper deity give for what to build fine temples in whose sacred shadows will lurk the gaunt spectre of famine and the grisly gorgon of crime to buy grand organs and costly bells to peel praises to one who had nowhere to lay his head to pay stall-fed preachers five ten twenty thousand dollars a year to expound the doctrine of a poor carpenter who couldn't have kept a silver dollar in his jeans a single day while there was poverty and suffering in the world while the wealth producer is robbed to pension millionaires who suffered mental anguish because of the draft and to administer worse than useless laws still the amount so unnecessarily abstracted would be but a mere bagatelle if labor was subtly employed and reaped its just reward with the mighty energies of this nation in full play and the wealth remaining with its producers we could give even all the candidates an office with plenty to get and little to do and still have pie in the pantry and corn in the crib there is something more the matter than governmental waste there's something radically wrong in tracing the causes of panics and periods of business depression we invariably find our currency more or less at fault now don't get frightened i'm not going to dose you with free silver nor give you the gold cure this is neither coins financial school nor a gold bug incubator the currency question is one you know all about everybody does especially the corner grocery politician he understands it from a to izzard knows almost as much about it as a hello girl does of the nature of electricity professor javon truly says that a kind of intellectual vertigo appears to seize people when they talk of money perhaps the goddess of liberty on the silver dollar has em trilbyized we hear a great deal of late about the science of money it's supposed to be something very esoteric something that a fellow can only master by drawing heavily on his gray matter by working his think machine up to the limit and sweating blood now let me tell you that there is no science of money any more than there's a science of harvesting hoop poles or fighting flies when a man begins to give you an interminable song and dance about the science of money just you send for the police and have him locked up as a dangerous lunatic here's a ticket good for so many meals at a restaurant an order for so much wealth and here's a silver dollar no tisn't it's a check on a er on a resort in fact on a saloon an i o u for twelve and a half cents the price of a cigar or something i suppose man should not live by bread alone now what's the difference between this ticket and check and the currency issued by the government simply this these are the i o u s of individuals money the i o u s of the entire american people 
These are orders for certain kinds of wealth at particular places. Money is an order for all kinds of wealth at any place within the jurisdiction of the federal government. This ticket is the check of one American, drawn against his personal wealth and credit. This bill is the check of all Americans, drawn against the collective wealth and credit of the nation. That's all the difference between a cocktail check and a coin, between a meal ticket and a ten-dollar bill. Neither is worth a rap until it can be redeemed. Like sanctification caught at a camp meeting, there must be a hereafter to it, or it's a humbug. But don't you medalists take that as a premise and jump at conclusions, or you're liable to sprain your logical sequence. What kind of redemption did I have in view when I acquired this check, I mean this ticket? I expected that it would be redeemed in something that would expand my surcingle and enable me to cast a shadow in eggs and oleomargarine, cornbread and buttermilk. And if so redeemed on demand, is it not a good ticket? Is it not worth its face? What kind of redemption did I expect when I acquired this bill? I expected it to be redeemed in the necessaries of life, or possibly the luxuries. Who issued it? The government. Who's the government? The people. And when the people have given me bread and butter, tobacco and transportation, clothing and cocktails, and afforded me police protection to the extent of my ten dollars, hasn't it been redeemed in the manner I anticipated, in the only way in which money can be redeemed? If I exchange this bill for a gold eagle, what have I got? another governmental drink check or meal ticket that awaits redemption. And there you have the whole science of money, over which politicians have so long puzzled their brains that their think tanks have got full of logical wiggle tails. A dollar, whether it be made of gold, silver, or paper, is simply an order which the people, in their official capacity, give against all the wealth, actual and potential, of the nation. And unless the holder can get it promptly redeemed in food and clothing, he's in a terribly bad fix. Every few years, our industrial system gets the jim-jams. Capital flies to cover, factories close, and labor goes tramping across the country seeking honest employment and receiving a warm welcome from militia companies with shotted guns. Cheerful idiots begin to prattle of overproduction, the economic MDs to refurbish all the old remedies, from conjure bags to communism. They all know exactly what caused the crisis and what to do for it, but despite the doctors, the patient usually survives, and the M.D. who succeeds in cramming his pet panacea down its throat claims all the credit for the recovery. We are slowly emerging from the crash of 93, and the cuckoos are cocksure that Cleveland hoodooed with that financial rabbit foot known as the gold reserve that a country fairly bursting with wealth was saved from the damnition bow-wows by the blessed expedient of going into debt, that labor found salvation by shouldering an added burden in the shape of interest-bearing bonds. 
Hereafter, when a burrow tries to lie down beneath a load that's making him bench-legged, we'll just pile a brick house or two on top of him, and with ears and tail erect, he'll strike a Nancy Hanks gate and come cavorting down the home stretch. When a statesman can see such things as that while wide awake and perfectly sober, he ought to consult a doctor. No wonder the Democratic Party split wide open, transformed from an ascendant sun into a bifurcated Beelus comet, wandering the Lord knows whither. The gold reserve, we are told, is to protect the credit of our currency. Protect it from whom? You and I are making no assault upon it. Wouldn't hurt it for the world. When we get a paper or silver dollar, we don't trot around to the treasury to have it redeemed in a slug of yellow metal. We make a beeline for the grocery store and have it redeemed in a side of bacon. Who is it that chisels desolation into the blessed gold reserve, the so-called bulwarks of our currency? The fellows who want bonds, the capitalistic, the creditor class, the men who own the mortgages and have millions of dollars corded up in bank, the men who have most to lose by any bobble in the credit of our currency. And every time the capitalist tries to hoist himself with his own petard, the administration smothers the blaze with a block of interest-bearing bonds. If he wants to make a skyrocket of himself, let him kerosene his coattails and apply the match. If the gold reserve were really necessary to the credit of our currency, capitalists would no more make war upon it than they would be stride a buzzsaw making a million revolutions a minute. Instead of systematically draining it, they would, whenever it struck the danger line, gather all the gold they could get and send it on to Washington. The capitalists are not crazy. They've simply got a soft snap in that bulwark business and are working it for all it's worth. Calico is sold by the yard, kerosene by the gallon, coffee by the pound. These measures are immutable, and those who buy and sell by them make their contract in perfect confidence. But suppose they altered from day to day, or from year to year, the yard ranging from twenty-five to fifty inches, the pound from ten to twenty ounces, would our exchanges be affected without much friction, think you? Would not such a ridiculous system of weights and measures paralyze exchange and demoralize industry? Would not those who could juggle the system to suit themselves, buying by a long and selling by a short yard, accumulate colossal fortunes at the expense of the common people? Would we not have panics in plenty and depressions galore? Well, that is exactly what is happening to the dollar, our measure of value, the most important of all our trade tools. And mark you, a change in the purchasing power of the dollar is equivalent to an alteration of every weight and measure employed by commerce. Understand? When the purchasing power of the dollar expands or contracts, it has the same effect on exchange as would the expansion or contraction of the yard, the gallon, and the pound. A shifting measure of value is the nigger in our industrial woodpile. We have got to have a measure of value that's as immutable as our measure of quantity. 
a dollar as reliable as an official pound a dollar that's the same yesterday and today and forever before we see the last of these panics and periods of business depression we have got to have a currency that will adapt itself automatically and infallibly to the requirements of commerce that will constitute an ever-effective exchange medium before we can obtain a smooth-working industrial machine and the maximum employment of labor we know from experience that gold will not supply us with such a currency that silver will not do it that bimetallism will not do it that green backism as we understand the term will not come within a mile of it then what will do it that's the problem solve it and you forever put an end to commercial panics in a land of plenty you deprive capital of its power to oppress labor you assure industry a constant friend where it has so often found an insidious foe solve it and columbia can furnish happy homes for half the world homes unhaunted by the wolf of want but crowned with sweet content and gilded with freedom's glory for a century economists have been seeking the solution of this all-important problem even conservative old adam smith dreamed of the emancipation of the world from the multifarious ills of metallic money but we still cling with slavish servility to the silver of abraham and the gold of solomon i do not claim to have found the philosopher's stone for which so many wiser men have sought in vain but the currency plan i proposed in eighteen ninety one and which was again outlined in the iconoclast for may of this year has been carefully examined by the ablest financiers of europe and america and they have been unable to point out a fundamental fault it is known as the interconvertible bond currency plan by which our circulating media would be bottomed on the entire wealth of the nation instead of upon fragments of metal of fluctuating value by which the volume of the currency would depend not upon the fecundity of the mines the fiat of congress or the greed of wall street but upon the needs of commerce itself by this plan the proportion between the money work to be done and the money available to do it is always the same hence it would afford an immutable measure of value in studying the plan it is well to bear in mind that our foreign trade that boogeyman of the metalists has no more to do with our currency than with our pint cups and bushel baskets no more than with our language and religion that we can pay our foreign debts and collect our foreign credits only in commodities that the prattle indulged in by the metalists anent money that is good the world over is mere goose speech that there is no such money we buy and sell with england and france to the extent of tens of millions annually yet i haven't seen a british guinea or a french franc in fifteen years and if you had a foreign coin and should go around to a resort and call for a glass of er uh, of buttermilk and plank the little stranger down on the counter the party in the white apron and alaska dazzler would say what you're givin us you'd reply i'm giving you gold 
money good the world over what is it watch charm this ain't no pawn shop but that's money eh money gold coin that maketh the heart glad what kind o money it's a british guinea well why don't you go to great britain to blow yourself but my dear sir this is money of final payment this is value itself this does not depend on the stamp of government but circulates throughout the world on its intrinsic merit well it don't circulate in this joint see slam your theories up against conditions before you tie to them you all know that in this country there should be no such thing as able-bodied pauperism you know that until the last arable acre is brought to the highest possible cultivation every mine developed every forest made to contribute to the creature comfort of man there should be remunerative work for all you know that with the aid of wealth-creating machinery every laborer should be able to acquire a competence to comfort his declining days you know that until need is satisfied and greed is gorged there can be no such thing as overproduction that under normal conditions when there is a plethora of necessaries the surplus energy of the nation turns to the creation of luxuries and the standard of living advances you know that with such wonderful resources touched by the magic wand of genius the golden age of which poets have dreamed and for which philanthropists have prayed should be even at our doors i hope to contribute in some slight degree to the establishment of conditions that will enable us to utilize to the utmost the free gifts of a gracious god to the proper distribution of wealth to the emancipation of labor not by the law of blind force but enlightened self-interest not by riotous revolution but peaceful evolution i want to see every american citizen in very truth a sovereign to whom life is a joy instead of a curse i want to see every rag transformed into a royal robe every hovel into a cultured home i want to hasten if by ever so little the day when we can boast with the proud sons of imperial rome that to be an american is greater than to be a king and when we so amend industrial conditions that each can find employment at profitable prices we do more to eliminate crime and foster morality than have all the prophets and preachers from melchizedek the mythical to talmage the turgid no man can be either a patriot or a consistent christian on an empty stomach he's merely a savage animal a dangerous beast you must get a square meal inside of a man and a clean shirt outside of him before he's fit subject for saving grace you must give him a bath before he's worth baptizing and when you get him clean and well clothed fed and housed as a reward of his own honest industry he's not far from the kingdom of god but if you want to degrade a people beyond redemption, if you want to transform them into contemptible peons and whining hypocrites who encumber the earth like so much unclean vermin, educate them to feed on the crumbs from dives' banquet board, 
and accept his cast-off clothing with obsequious thankfulness. The concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, and the impoverishment of the common people until it was the bread of charity or the blood of the revolution, has ever been the herald of moral decay and of national death. So passed the glory of Greece and the grandeur of Rome, and if we may judge the future by the past, so will perish the greatest republic that ever gleamed like a priceless jewel on the skeleton hand of time. Self-interest, humanity, patriotism, religion itself, admonish us to weigh well the problem of the hour, a problem born of human progress, forced upon us by the mighty revolution wrought in the industrial world by the giant steam. And that problem is, Shall the average American citizen be a slave or a sovereign? Don't imagine for a moment that I'm an anarchist, that I'm going to wind up this seance by unfurling the red flag and throwing a hatful of bombs. I admit that I haven't much respect for law. There's so much of it that when I come to spread my respect over the entire lot, it's about as thin as one of Sam Jones' sermons. Still, I don't believe in strikes and riots and bloodshed. I'm for peace, peace in its most virulent form. I've had a sneaking respect for Cleveland ever since he employed a substitute to put a kibosh on the Southern Confederacy while he remained at home to play pinochle with the pretty girls. He may not be much of a statesman in time of peace, but there's no picnic ants on his judgment in time of war. It is time that capital and labor realize that their interests are really co-mutual, as interdependent as the brain and the body. Time they ceased their fratricidal strife, and uniting their mighty forces under the flag of progress, completed the conquest of the world and doomed poverty ignorance and vice hell's great triumvirate to banishment eternal unless labor is employed capital cannot increase it can only concentrate unless property rights are held inviolable and capital thereby encouraged to high enterprise labor is left without a lever with which to lift itself to perfect life and must sink back to barbarism it is time that american citizens of alleged intelligence ceased trailing blindly in the wake of partisan bandwagons and began to seriously consider the public welfare time they realized that the people were not made for parties but parties for the people and refused to sacrifice their patriotism on the unclean altar of partisan slavery blind obedience to party fiat, the division of the people of one great political family into hostile camps, subjection of the public interest to partisan advantage, placing the badge of party servitude above the crown of American sovereignty, the ridiculous oriflamme of foolish division above old glory's star-gemmed promise of everlasting unity have brought the first nation of all world to the very brink of destruction. It is difficult for people here in Texas to understand the industrial condition of the American nation today, 
to appreciate the dangers upon which it is drifting. We are too apt to imagine everybody as prosperous and conservative as ourselves. Or if not so, it's because they do not vote the democratic ticket, that panacea for all the ills that flesh is heir to. Here in Texas we have hung our second providence on the Democratic Party. It has become a religion with us. If a man is orthodox in his political faith, all things are forgiven him. But if there's any doubt about his democracy, we are inclined to regard him as an alien, if not an anarchist. Most of us enjoy the shadow of our own vine and fig tree, which it is impossible to mortgage, we feed three times a day have a cocktail every morning a clean shirt occasionally and even when cotton goes so low it doesn't pay for the paris green to poison the worms we blame it on the lord instead of on our political leaders but it's different in other sections of the union america contains more than a million as desperate men as ever danced the carmagnole or shrieked with brutal joy when the blood of french aristocrats reddened the guillotine the dark alleys and unclean dives of our great cities are crowded with dangerous sans-culottes and our highways with hungry men eager for bread though the world blaze for it pauperism is rampant the criminal class is increasing, and everywhere the serpent of socialism is leaving its empoisoned slime. Suppose that these desperate elements find a determined leader, a modern Marat, who will make the most of his opportunities for evil. How many of that vast contingent now clinging with feeble grasp to the rotten skirts of a doubtful respectability would be swept into the seething vortex of unbridled villainy note the failure of public officials to protect corporate property the necessity of calling for federal bayonets and batteries to suppress labor riots the dangerous unrest of the common people the sympathy of the farmer that atlas upon whose broad shoulders rests our political and industrial world with every quasi-military organization that throws down the gauge of battle to the powers that be then tell me if you can where dives may look for defenders should the rabble rise in its wrath the bullet supplant the ballot in the irrepressible conflict between the cormorant and the commune and what are we doing to avert the danger? Distributing a little dole and preaching patience to starving people, quarreling about the advisability of counting a quorum, or coining a little silver seigneurage, wrangling over the rights of a mid-Pacific prostitute to rule Celts and Saxons, and trying to so reform the tariff that it will yield more revenue with less taxation. We are bowing down before various pie-hunting political gods and electing men to Congress who couldn't tell the federal constitution from Calvin's confession of faith. We are sending street-corner economists to state and national conventions to evolve from their innate ignorance and gild with their supernal gall political platforms which we are pledged beforehand to accept as the essence of all worldly wisdom. 
our patriotism has been supplanted by partisanship and now all are for a party and none are for the state on july fourth we shout for the old flag and all the rest of the year we clamor for an appropriation the man who is kicked by a nightmare while dreaming of the draft demands a pension and every burning patriot wants an office and while our ship of state is threading with unsteady course the stormy straits between the scylla of greed and the charybdis of need its canvas torn by contending winds its decks swept by angry waves we boast of the strength of our free institutions as though republics had never fallen nor revolutions erased from the map of the world proud empires that imagined themselves immortal but before god i do believe this selfish and unpatriotic age will pass as past the age of brutish ignorance as past the age of tyranny i believe the day will come o blessed dawn when the angel of intellect will banish the devil of demagogy when americans will be in spirit and in truth a band of brothers the wrongs of one the concern of all when labor will no longer fear the cormorant nor capital the commune when all men will be equal before the law wherever falls the shadow of our flag End of section 43, part 2.